This is Leewood Online, a ministry of Leewood Baptist Church, located in the Kansas City area. For more information about us, visit us online at www.leewoodbaptist.com. I'm glad that Pastor Jason read this passage before I came up. Uh, because be prepared this morning for all of us together as a faith family to get our toes stepped on a little bit. When we uh, were looking at starting uh, a sermon series through the book of James, I was a little bit hesitant um, because I know what James is like. Uh, I remember as a youth pastor, I took our teens through the book of James, um, and I just remember going through that and just even that ideal idea of feeling like, I don't know if I'm the right person to be sharing this information from God's Word, because you walk through it, and James has a way of pulling no punches, and today is another one of those days as we've walked through this. I mean, when we look at James and what we've seen so far, remember James obviously is the writer of this book, and he's writing to uh, the persecuted church of Jerusalem. They've been spread out throughout the region because of persecution. Many of these people had had family members who had been tortured and killed because of their faith in Jesus Christ, and so they felt. And so James is writing that, and so he opens right off the bat, right off the bat holding no punches, and he says, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you fall into trials of various kinds. And he goes on to unpack how the believer is supposed to have this eternal perspective. Well, if we're all honest, many times, if not most of the time in our lives, we do not have an eternal perspective on our lives. We kind of live day to day, hour by hour, minute to minute, and we kind of just live in the here and now. And we forget that we're living for a much bigger purpose. And so that when God does bring trials, difficulties, and sufferings in our lives, that we often we forget what God might be at work trying to do in our lives and producing character uh, and virtue in our lives. Uh, we talked about at the end of James 1, not just hearing God's word, but doing God's word. And James said that anyone who heard God's word but didn't do anything about it was like someone who would look in the mirror, see something wrong with their appearance, and do nothing about it. And so uh, we, we looked at, and so we saw that those who are believers in Jesus Christ are those that when they hear God's word, they apply it to their lives and they live it out. We talked about how a true religion is caring about those that are marginalized in our society and culture and how we as believers are called to care about those, those folks and those people that are marginalized and, and pushed to the edges of our culture. And we talked about how re religion is loving God and loving other people. We talked two weeks ago about the sin of favoritism about how the, the church there of Jerusalem, they, had, we would, they would allow rich people to sit up close and poor people towards the back. And, uh, you know, obviously they weren't Baptist because the rich people would have wanted to sit in the back and then stay back there. But uh, so we know that they weren't um, Baptist. And so they sat up front and, uh, and they would, they, or they would allow the, the, they would tell the poor people to either stand or sit at the feet of a rich 
person and how disoffensive that would be. Yet all the time, we in our own lives, we show favoritism. And then um, last week, Stephen shared uh, with us about how uh, faith and works, how does, that, how does that play out in our lives and that faith and works without, a faith without works is dead. We cannot say we believe in Jesus and not live it out and, and that affecting our actions. Well, we're going to kind of continue on that theme of faith without works is dead, but now James is going to talk about something very, very specifically. And so let's walk through this passage together and just promise me you don't get mad at me, okay? Let's look at James chapter 3 and let's look at verse 1. It says this. We're going to just stop at verse 1 for just a moment. It says, Not many should become teachers, my brothers, because you know that we will receive a stricter judgment. What in the world is James talking about here? Now remember, James is the one of the pastors of the church in Jerusalem. And so he is an elder, a pastor, a bishop, whatever you want to call it, an overseer of the church. He's a teacher of the church. He's teaching even in his writing here in James. And he says here, not many should become teachers. What James is saying is he says, he's saying not many should, people should become teachers, leaders, overseers in the church. We don't have time this morning, but if you want to, you should go over to 1 Timothy chapter 2, where it talks about the qualifications of an elder, pastor, bishop, overseer in the church. There are some very specific qualifications to those that lead in the church, that oversee the church, and one of those qualifications is teaching, the ability to teach. And so James is saying if, that not many should become teachers in the church. Why? Because he goes to something that honestly, as a pastor, as a leader in the church, scares me very much so. Because he says, because you know that we will receive a stricter judgment. That means that elders, pastors, leaders in the church should be held to a very high standard. And that James even mentions and hints at here that there will be a stricter judgment in eternity for those that teach and lead in the church. And so if you are a teacher or a leader in the church, Proceed with caution. And though James is specifically talking about, specifically about teaching and leading in the church, I believe it even applies to our families. As we teach, as we lead in our families, as we teach and we lead in other contexts just in the church, we must proceed with caution. Scripture says, to, much, to whom much has been given, much is required. So faith, family, I, just, I think this is a good warning to us from James, is that as we lead to proceed with caution. And there was a seminary professor I had when I was at New Orleans 
Um, and he, it was a pastoral leadership class, and he told us, uh, a, a group of seminary students, he said, if you feel like God is calling you to pastor and lead in the church, and you can see yourself doing anything else, he said, do it. And he referenced James chapter 3. And so as we lead, as we teach in the church, we must proceed with caution. All right, let's keep going to verse 2 now. James says, "For For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is mature, able also to control the whole body. Now, if we put bits in the mouths, uh, mouths of horses so that they may obey us, we direct their whole bodies. And consider ships, though very large and driven by fierce winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So James goes directly to talking about the tongue, what a believer in Jesus Christ says. And he says, verse 2, for we all stumble in many ways. Now, that's consistent with the rest of Scripture. I mean, Paul even wrote, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So we are all in the same boat together. We're all sinners. We all stumble together. And as we specifically talk about the, the tongue and our mouths, we are all in this together, okay? So as we walk through this very convicting passage of Scripture, let's just know that we are all in this together, okay? This is a very uh, difficult thing that we're having to consider, and we're going to get our toes stepped on. So we're all in this together. So he says, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is mature, able also to control the whole body. Now, it's interesting. He uses an illustration here in his writing. What's the first illustration that James uses to teach us about the power and the danger of our tongues? Well, he uses first the illustration of a horse. Does anyone here like horseback riding? Anyone like, like this is awesome, okay, a couple of you, okay? Um, I'm not like a, nor- a typically normal, fearful person, but horseback riding is one of those things that just scares me to death. I don't know what it is. Um, when I was in college, I went out to Colorado and did horseback riding. And you want to talk about a terrifying experience. Uh, riding a horse, uh, uh, riding on a ho- uh, the back of a horse through the mountains with ledges that drop hundreds of feet. Um, at that point, I mean, I just kept t- thinking, the only thing I think about is my life is completely in the hands of an animal. And I, I'm, I don't know if I have control issues, but in that scenario, I had control issues, okay? I wanted, I did not want to leave the, my, the, my life in the hands of an animal. I mean, I kept, I know this is, this is crass, I don't even know if I should say this, but I mean, like Christopher Reeves kept going through my mind. Like, I don't like it. I have never been horseback, horseback riding since. I don't plan on going horseback riding. Uh, I've been to rodeos, and I, and I see these um, cowboys on the back of these horses. I just think these guys are absolutely insane. But when you are horseback riding, what is the one piece of control that hopefully it works and the horse listens to you? What is the one piece of control someone riding a horse has? The reins, right? Like if you pull back on the reins of a horse, what is the horse supposed to do? Stop, hopefully, if they're a good horse. 
Well, how, how that works is I had to explain to me that terrifying day in Colorado was that if you want your horse to stop, just pull back on the reins because in a mouth, they train the horses. They have pieces of metal that when the, 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 the leather is pulled back, it pushes the metal in the back of the horse and the horse just knows, okay, when that metal's pushed back in my mouth, I'm supposed to stop. And they call it a bit. And so with that bit, and the bit is not really, compared to the size of the animal and horses, listen, I'm not anti-horse. I love horses. Uh, they're, they're gorgeous animals. I'll watch the Kentucky Derby with anyone. I just don't want to ride them. I think it's, uh, it's just it's a personal thing, but they're gorgeous creatures. It's a, just a, a sign of the creativity and the beauty of God's creation. So I, don't hear me wrong. I'm not anti-horse. But that gigantic, magnificent animal, gorgeous animal, is controlled by just a small piece of metal. It's unbelievable. So he uses that. And so he says, verse 3, Now if we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we direct their whole bodies. Then verse 4, he gives another uh, illustration. He says, Consider ships. Though they're large and driven by fierce winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot or the captain directs. So you think about a gigantic ship. Think of one of those ships back in the day of pirates. You know, these big wooden ships with the masts coming out of it, with the sails. You all have that picture in your mind, these big, gorgeous ships and I envision a captain, it's a pirate, and that, that captain has this wheel, you know, with the pegs coming out, this wooden wheel, and he's uh, steering the ship even in the middle of a storm. They're, they're trying to guide that ship with their hands, and that wheel of the ship is connected to the rudder. And if you look at the back of those ships, you can see the rudder. Now, the bigger the ship, the bigger the rudder, but, cons- but considering the rest of the size of the ship, the rudder's a smaller uh, piece of that ship or boat. And so you use that rudder to steer a gigantic, massive uh, structure uh, with a rudder. I wish Jim Evans was here. Jim Evans has told me stories about being on an aircraft carrier. And, our, and you think of those huge aircraft carriers during World War II, and they have a rudder, and they steer these huge ships just based on a rudder. And so James says, consider ships, though very large and driven by fierce winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So he gives us two illustrations to help us understand our tongues. So let's go down to verse 5. He says, so too, though the tongue is a small part of the body, it boasts great things. So James immediately compares our tongues to the bit in the mouth of a horse or the rudder of a ship. And our tongues, compared to the rest of our bodies, is a pretty small member of our body. It's not very big. But, he says, it boasts great things. And then look down and it says, consider... How small a fire sets ablaze a large forest. Seems like every year we hear of forest fires that do great damage. I think of just even 
recently, like in California, there's been terrible uh, wildfires out in California over the past few years. Even in this last year, even uh, the continent of Australia, they've had really bad forest fires that have that has just done incredible amounts of damage. Well, all of those fires start with one small spark. Think of that. One small spark. You think of uh, Smokey the Bear. What does he say? Only you can prevent forest fires. What's he talking about? If you go camping, compared to the rest of the forest, if you have a campfire, it's not a very big part of the forest. But if your campfire gets out of control, it could burn down the entire forest. And so James says, consider how a small fire sets ablaze a large forest. And then he says, verse 6, and the tongue is a what? What's it say there? Fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among our members. It stains the whole body, sets the course of life on fire, and it, set, it, and it and is itself set on fire by hell. These are some pretty powerful extreme words James is using. Then look at verse 7. He says, every kind of animal, bird, reptile, and fish is tamed and has been tamed by humankind. But it says in verse 8, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So here's the reality for you and I. We have something in our body that is a fire, that is evil, that it cannot be tamed, it is restless, and it is full of deadly poison, and that is our tongue. As kids, we hear, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me. There's never been a greater lie ever told. How many of you have ever been hurt by something that someone has said to you? Okay, if you didn't raise your hand, you're not human. All of us have been in that boat of being hurt by the words of somebody else. There may even be some here that have been verbally abused. And you know, the pain that that can carry, the scarring that that can leave, and the years of mental anguish it can leave behind just by a phrase or a sentence. I remember working with, when I was a, a student pastor, I remember working with a college student and he told me his dad had uh, left their family. His name was Bradley Stillwell. He left uh, Bradley and his brother Jonathan when, the, when Bradley was six and his brother was four. And he said, before my dad left, he told my mom and my, me, my brother, told us that we were worthless. When Bradley told me that, he was 20 years old, and he was six when he was told that. He remembered that. And that's something that he will carry for the rest of his life. The last thing my dad, he hasn't seen his dad since, and he didn't, didn't want to see his dad. Can't blame him. You are 
worthless. Many of us have had those kinds of things set, said to us, and we know the years and the decades of hurt and pain that words can cause us. Every one of us have been hurt by words, and so faith family, we know that, and we, 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 we know that, but just as James said in James chapter 2, in verse 8, he said, Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law as prescribed in Scripture, you should love your neighbor as yourself. And so every one of us have been hurt by the words of others. And so we must, as believers in Jesus Christ, valuing the life of other people, we must be very careful what we say. Because they carry not just lifelong memories, but eternal impact. And so James compares the tongue to a restless evil full of deadly poison, and we can go on and on and talk about different illustrations that our tongues can have. I think of how many churches have been split based on what people have said, how many people have been hurt by gossip, how many people have... uh, have just talked to each other in an inappropriate way. We think of gossip, and a lot of times we don't even understand what gossip is. Like, gossip is all this is a pretty minor thing. We may not specifically be saying something about someone, but we might be being passive-aggressive in what we say. And even passive-aggressiveness can even be more harmful than just aggressive words. And we think about gossip. What is gossip? I think we need to have a good definition of gossip. There's a friend of mine his name's Josh King. He's a pastor in Arkansas. Here's how Josh defines gossip. Write this down. He says, Goss- this is gossip. Every single time we talk about a problem with a person not involved, it's gossip. That's it. Let me say that again. Every single time we talk about a problem with a person not involved, it's gossip. That's it. And we look at the damage that gossip can do with our mouths, and we think about the damage over the years that things have happened in families, in churches, and in businesses based just on hearsay and gossip. When we talk about a problem with a person not involved, it's gossip. When we think about that, oh my goodness, it's very, very difficult. So when I read this passage in James chapter 3 this week, I thought, what's the use in saying anything? Right? I mean, if my tongue is, and it is, it's, a, a, it's set on fire of hell, it's, a, it's, a, it's restless evil full of deadly poison, I'm like, let's just sew my mouth shut now. So how can we go from people who have mouths that are a deadly fire that sets forests on fire, how do we control it? Faith, family, I ask myself that question, and the conclusion is, only by the grace of God. It takes a sanctifying work that only a miracle of God can do to to save us from our tongue. God must change our hearts because when we say things from our mouths, really what it is is coming uh, coming from our heart. I said a few weeks ago, I had a coach once tell us, guys, your tongue is a dipstick to your heart. It's just going to come out. You ever heard of the phrase like diarrhea of the mouth? It's just coming out from inside of us. It's not an accident. Whenever we say something, it's not an accident. I accidentally meant to say, no, we didn't accidentally mean to say, that's actually what we really meant. It came 
from our innermost beings. The, the tongue is a dipstick to our heart. What we say is really revealing how we are inside. And we might be able to filter our mouths and our tongues for a period of time, but the, matter, the fact of the matter is, if we are not being regenerated by the, the power of the Holy Spirit, if our hearts are not being changed by God, our tongues are going to naturally, naturally reveal that. James goes on to say, look at verse, 10, uh, verse 9. He says, With the tongue we bless our Lord and our Father, and with it we curse people who are made in God's likeness. What's James saying to the church of Jerusalem? He's saying, church family, we have a lot of hypocrisy in our church. That's what James is saying as the pastor of this church of Jerusalem. He's saying we have a lot of hypocrisy in our church, and it's based on our tongues, our mouths, by what we say. Because he says, we, in one moment, we bless our Lord and Father. One moment, we're worshiping. But in another moment, we curse people who are made in God's likeness. James goes back to that theology of, of pro-life. Many of us, and I hope we are, as people of God, we should be pro-life, standing for the unborn. But if we're pro-life with the unborn, we need to be pro-life in every area of our life, even by what we say to people. If we value human life, and we value human life, why? Because we believe that God in Genesis chapter 2 created man and, man and woman in his likeness, in his image. That is why we believe in the sanctity of life, that each human being, no matter uh, skin color, no matter culture, no matter ethnic background, is made beautifully by God and is made in his image. And so if we are all made in God's image... We should then value and respect that life so much, even in how we speak to another human being, because they're made in God's image, made in his likeness. So even in our pro-life theology and doctrine, we must be pro-life even in what we say to one another. He goes on to say, verse 10, blessing and cursing come out of the same mouth. My brothers and sisters, these things should not be this way. Does a spring pour out sweet and bitter water from the same opening? Rhetorical question, of course not. Verse 2, can a fig tree produce olives? Nope, that's not how it works. My brothers and sisters, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a saltwater spring yield fresh water. What James is saying is our tongues reveal who we are on the inside. And so we must get on our knees and plead with God to change our hearts. Why do we need God to change our hearts? Because there's a lot at stake. Because if our hearts are not changed by the redemptive work of God, then it is going to come out in our mouths and that small little fire that is our tongue, as it comes out, it is going to start a forest fire. Faith family, we need God to change our hearts 
so that way we can talk in an appropriate manner so that there is not great damage caused. Thank you for joining us online. Leewood Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. For more information about us and our ministry, please visit us at www.leewoodbaptist.com. Thank you.